I'm Blake Howard. This is the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. A Michael Mann film-inspired podcast tackling everything about the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, through a very specific lens. It's finale. And oh boy, is it an all-timer of a finale. Soaring score from Randy Edelman and Trevor Jones's adaptation of The Gale. Unbelievable performances by Daniel Day-Lewis, Madeline Stowe, Russell Means, Eric Schwieg, Jody May, Steve Waddington. Lensed so stunningly and staggeringly by the legendary Dante Spinotti and directed by Michael Mann. We have a war party of cinema's sharpest minds along for the ride, all culminating with the mountainous director himself, Mr. Mann. Welcome to the show. This is not my guest's first rodeo talking about Michael Mann to me on a podcast. He is an Edgar Award winning author. He is currently in the writer's room of Dune, The Sisterhood, which is freaking amazing. And he devastates me every time when I read his Twitter bio because he talks about his doomed LA Confidential pilot, which I absolutely love and adore. He's one of my favorite people, Jordan Harper. Welcome to this, the last 12 minutes of The Mohicans. So, so glad to be back with you as always. Now, I, I do not have any Natty Bumpo uh, action <laughs> figures. And let's just start, if I may, before you get going. I just want to know, does anybody call him Natty Bumpo in the film, Last of the Mohicans? No, they don't. No. Not a single because Natty it's Bumpo. A, it's a stupid name. <laughs> it is a really dumb name. It's really dumb. It's Nathaniel Poe. Um, mm, apparently oh. meant to be a uh, Edgar Allan Poe homage. I think I'm right at saying nope. that. Like, it, nope. No? No. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you're wrong factually. I'm just saying it's not. No. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> That's good. Um, have you, in your uh, course of recording this or just in your research, have you, have you talked about the Mark Twain uh, review of this book? No, I, I briefly touched on it uh, with Walter Chaw, but I would love if you could bring it up in more detail because, yes, James Fenimore Cooper, if you talk about literary criticism, the kind of worst human living or dead to criticize your work written down would be one of the greatest writers almost ever, Mark Twain, <laughs> who eviscerated uh, uh, James Fenimore Cooper's novel and said it broke like all of the rules of uh, narrative fiction. Um, but if you could please sort of uh, uh, elaborate on that, that would be just wonderful. Yeah, well, it is one of the most vicious takedowns that you will ever read in any in any format. And you know, whenever there's like a universally derided movie nowadays, every movie critic just gets overjoyed to get to kind of throw their little punches out and, and stomp the guy who's down. But like, I don't think uh, James Fenimore Cooper was well regarded yes. when Twain did this, and he wrote. I, you know, I don't have it in front of me. If I had to guess, it is 5,000 words minimum. <laughs> yes. um, and he starts with the rules of fiction. He goes through the fact, and you do see this in the movie, the fact that Natty Bumpo's diction 
twists from the amazingly poetic to the absolutely down home with sort of no sense that can be seen. Um, at one point, he he literally takes an action scene and deconstructs it and kind of holds it up to the light and says, this literally makes no physical sense. Um, and it is just, if you haven't read it, it's up there with like Hunter S. Thompson's um, obituary for Richard Nixon as like a, 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 a thing that must be read. And it's just like a, 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 an old school diss track. And it's really, <laughs> it was my first exposure to Last of the Mohicans. I had a, a book of like a, a omnibus of American comedy um, when I was a kid and it had like all sorts of, of crap and, and funny things in it. And, but that was like one of the centerpieces. And it, I, I don't know, when did this movie come out? It was 92. This is 92. Yeah. The Michael Mann version. Yeah. 92. So yeah, I definitely read, read this. So I had that in my head when I saw this movie and obviously I've, so I have not read the book last of the Mohicans. The movie is a, apparently a huge improvement on the book. Yeah. Significant. Absolutely significant on the book, by all accounts. That's kind of universally now understood. But I'm going to, uh, the, the actual piece, just for, for folks, I've been um, Googling while Jordan and I have been talking, it's called Fenimore, <laughs> in the title, Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses by Mark Twain. Um, and he goes, This is just one of the best quotes. Cooper's art has some defects. In one place in Deerslayer and the restricted space of two thirds of a page, Cooper has scored 114 offences against the literary art out of a possible 115. It breaks the record. There are 19 <laughs> rules governing literary art that are made of romantic fiction. Some say 22. In Deerslayer, Cooper violated 18 of them. These 18 require, and he literally itemizes every rule that he completely breaks. It's wonderful. It's a really wonderful read. Well, and, and to your point of like, you know, you can always use the defense of, well, come on, what's a critic know? Or isn't that just like a critic to diss? And it's like, nah, he, nah. he wrote Huck, Huck Finn. <laughs> he, he's, he's one of the greatest living, or not living writers, he's one of the great, well, the great American writers for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I, think, so like, I think when you're being schooled, like that would almost be like a filmmaker getting a review by Martin Scorsese. Like, yeah. whatever Martin Scorsese says, you really kind of have to cop it on the chin. Like, if he hates it, it's like, yep. Shit, I, I made a shitty movie. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it could be universally praised. And Scorsese's like, that movie sucked. It'd be like, right. Back to the drawing board, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, it's true. Um, but I, that's, that's obviously taking the Mohicans wide. And, and you're here to talk about the last... 12 minutes, is it? Yes, it is. Um, I, I think I said this when you first said this. I, I have probably seen Last of the Mohicans, the entire film, I don't know, 10 times. Yes. You know, some kind of, and I have seen the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans probably 50 times. Yes. Um, I own it on iTunes. I, I just scroll ahead. I will, oh, what am I doing? Nothing. Okay, let's watch the last 12 minutes of Last of the Mohicans. Uh, it's really perfect filmmaking. Ah. Uh. Isn't isn't it just if to, and this is what I want to backtrack with you, Jordan. Is like to orchestrate that kind of uh, perfectly executed cinematic ending where all the emotions are conveyed, very little is said, everything is then being distilled in huge cinematic images, in scale, in speed, in movement. 
once you once you've uh, loved this movie and you've kind of like churned through it as many times as you and I have like watched it over and over again that final 12 minutes you don't like there's a shorthand that you have as a relationship with it it's like you feel all the things you felt in that in the preceding stuff and you just get to this yeah. ending and you go I could watch this just on a loop and in fact as part of this project on a couple of days in a row I was watching it on a loop uh, to get myself familiar with it but I I I can could not agree with you more every single part of its convergence to this moment is just like, oh, sublime. (laughs) You know, the the scene that precedes it is interesting Hmm. and very well made uh, in that, you know, there's the amazing sequence of like the triple translation that is going on. There's all the wheeling and dealing. There's the, uh, the elder, I'm sorry. I don't know anybody's names except for Magua. Um, I think they call him but Sashim, the, which is, I believe, Sashim. Just, yeah, I think it's Sashim, but I think that's a title. It's like a, yeah. a like a chief. Sashim is what they call the Huron chief, I guess, uh, what you call the chieftain. It, and, you know, what's interesting about it is like the deal they, they cook up is sort of nonsensical. It's just like, well, we're going to kill this person, but no, we'll kill you. Oh, wait, no, we're going to kill him. Um, but I think the thing that I really want to talk about is that much like many modern Marvel films, they have to make Magua do a couple of nasty things in this film because at the core of this movie, Magua is correct. 100%. A t-shirt um, that is coming out of this show is Magua was Magua right. Was right. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's very similar to, um, you've seen the new Planet of the Ape movies? Yes. Yes. Yeah. The, the villain of the second movie, which I think is the best of the three. Yeah, Koba. Uh, the, the, Koba, yeah. Koba. Koba was right. I think Koba was I right might have too. deleted it by now, but if you search my Twitter, <laughs> I think you can find tweets of me saying Koba was right. Um, and and he's very, they're very Magua-esque in that essentially these are arguments against colonialism. Yes. Uh, in both cases and arguments against the, the fact that white people just get to eat everything in the fucking world. <laughs> And the only way they can make those people the bad guys um, is to have them commit a few extraneous murders. Yes. Um, but like Magua, really his only crime, because he's totally correct to kill Madeline Stowe's father. Yes. That guy's a dick. Um, <laughs> he put Magua's family under the knife. Um, and so you can kind of argue in a revenge sense, is it really fair to go eye for an eye and, and wipe out this guy's family? I would say, sure, why not? I yeah. mean, we're, uh, we're, some of some of our vengeful hero, some of our vengeful heroes. Let's just talk about like one of the biggest f- revenge franchises going around right now. John Wick. John yeah. Wick's taken an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye over three movies, right? So like Margaret just killing the guy who killed his family and then killing his family. Eh, you know, maybe yeah. a bit dark, but taking his life, I totally agree. It's 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 very um, it, it's it's taking a much more elemental and and sort of communal view of like if if i don't care that you're a colonial superpower i don't care you're a general i don't care if you do it under this banner of war you killed my family i can kill you yeah yeah exactly and and i mean obviously daniel day lewis is fantastic um yeah wes duty is as good as he is in this movie if not better on repeat watches i'm 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 closer to saying that he's that he's the best thing in this movie because because when oh. they get when they go toe to toe in this wonderful triple translation uh, uh, outlaying of tribal judgment to try and 
appease people's different motivations on different scales. This session is trying to do some really, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually very sophisticated attempts at diplomacy <laughs> based on the circumstances of like everyone just wants blood. Like he, he knows he, yeah. he's in this sense, his tribe wants blood. He knows that Magua most certainly wants blood. Um, and he's also trying to appease these other tribal people because he knows that in some senses they're his partners. Um, uh, but yeah, that, that in that moment, especially because there's a couple of things that happen. And this is like where you see that later on, Daniel Day-Lewis is the best actor of his generation from like There Will Be Blood is there's a moment where like Magua is so good that he's cursing out a Huron chief in French, which I think is more insulting. He's cursing Mm -hmm. him out in French and then he's standing toe-to-toe with Daniel Day-Lewis and Daniel Day-Lewis just feels like he's being dwarfed. In fact, in that moment, the two people that saw out of the trio that are in front of us are really mm-hmm. Steve Waddington as Duncan Hayward, who's doing this yeah. incredible triple translation and negotiation, and Magua, because they're just... And, and Daniel Day-Lewis is raw and big and melodramatic, and that's what he needs to be as a character. He's the great American hero, but it's the sophistication of those two other guys in those moments, I think, that like intentionally kind of dwarf him, because the whole movie's been his, really, until now, in this movie. Yeah. And, and, and so it, from that perspective... When you really get into it, the ending, if we move like from that scene and the idea that Magua is right, the last 12 minutes of this film are incredibly depressing. Very. Um, because nobody wins nope. anything. Nope. Um, but like, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, like everybody's going to bring up the score. Um, one of the all-time great scores. Mm-hmm. Um, the location work, please ask man about scouting that cliff. How do you... North Carolina found found Thomas Cole literal Thomas Cole paintings in in the North yeah. Carolina mountains and uh, um, Chris Tapley the wonderful Chris Tapley was on uh, was on this show he's had friends and stuff in school in his local hometown in North Carolina that actually worked on set during this yeah. time um, you know digging out the forts and helping with costumes and whatnot like it was a big it was a huge production but yeah to find this wilderness that's just seems like it's boundless right it feels like an ocean like in those sweeping landscape shots like and this is the old days where and for folks who haven't heard the final episode of one heat minute one of my one of my personal highlights in that was when he talked about you know shooting last of the Mohicans they had to alter flight paths uh, so that there wouldn't right. be contrails in the air over the North Carolina mountains when they were shooting on certain days. Um, and man himself even said, like, now I wouldn't care. I wouldn't get any of the traffic right, to move. I'd just spend $1,000 and just get it fixed in post-production. Um, so it was a right. nice little insight onto the practicality. of. But at the time, to make that authenticity, it's like, no, we're literally negotiating with flight paths for this, you know, this state's airports. <laughs> it's like, don't fly over here for the next few days because we need to shoot these, uh, these, these shots in the movie. That's incredible. Um, and, you know, it really, it's one of the only, and I'm sure you'll have examples, there are not many great action films I can think of that take place during the guns can shoot one bullet era. No, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Um... Well, I'll just say, you know, it's, it, and I would love to, somebody must have written about this extensively. There are no great Revolutionary War films that I'm aware of. No. Uh, the American Revolution is, is nobody likes it. And, and my main argument, <laughs> I, I have this argument a lot about all sorts of different kinds of TV shows. You essentially cannot make a really good period piece about a place nobody wants to be. 
Like, yeah. and nobody wants to dress like the Madeline Stowe's dad in this movie, you know, with like the dumb powdered wig, the George Washington look. Do you know how uncomfortable those guys had to have been? And, and I love how Duncan lives that, right? Duncan's this yeah. prim, proper, you know, thoughtful you know, very trim. And then later on, he's got that wild, like Waddington's wild, long red yeah. hair. He's like, he's, you know, he's, it's all being, all this cordiality is being stripped away, clawed off of his body. Like, <laughs> get this fucking powdered wig off, man. Get it out of here. Well, and it's much like, um, you know, there, there's, there are some Civil War movies, but that's just because we're weird about that. Yes. But like that whole era, you never want to watch a movie set in New York in that era. Other mm. the gangs in New York, but that's kind of an exception. And even that movie's not great, but the entire like late 18th century or 1800s, I mean, uh, late 19th century is such a shitty time for humanity. And and there's no romance to it. Obviously this is pre that I know, but I'm just saying like you can do the old West, you can do Daniel day Lewis running through the forest and shooting deer, but the actual like white people's story of that time is, is very unromantic in a very basic way. Yes, definitely. And 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 I, I think, I think it's also deeply fascinating. I think this is what this movie gets right that so many others that that they they don't know how or they don't seem to have an approach to it is that man is really unabashed about going. This is a rich nation of Native American peoples mm-hmm. that is being essentially smashed into oblivion by two huge international colonial superpowers who are just like treading over their land and they're just trying to maintain their way. And we only skirt in this movie at the Albanese and things like that into the, the British getting their foothold more so than the French in the landscape in the country. And obviously the French divvy up and take Canada and becomes a, you know, a French colonial uh, 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 space for the longest time. And then similarly um, the England pre revolutionary war is, you know, the Americas. And so I, I think it's, like this for me is like the perfect morsel of that movie because it doesn't diminish any of the complexity of what the the political yeah. and, the, and landscape is, but then w- w- because it's so laser focused on like what starts as three, then is essentially six characters, and then all the way to the end, it's just another three characters again. Like they're just in amongst this war, and I I love that style of storytelling because like that feels like almost Gone with the Wind esque yeah. or Good the Bad and the Ugly. Like how how three you know, people with their own motivations are navigating around actual wars, but they don't give a shit about the war. The war is just the background, like, because their purposes are around the war. Like, the war's going to happen because there's bigger shit happening in the world, but they... They're focused on what their pursuits are. And so I think, I think that that's what's – I genuinely think it's a fascinating time. I think some TV shows are trying it. They just don't – I don't know if they've got the scale yet or the complexity yet or the approach yet. But I think there's a lot to be learned in structurally going, no, we need to, we need to make sure we are as rigorous and as authentic with what the landscape is. And then we can tell micro stories that help you channel some of the complexity through these simpler sort of archetypal characters. Well, I, no, I think that's right. And I think that movies are the correct place to tell stories of this scope. Um, you know, you're not my therapist, so I, I won't charge you for this, but I'll tell you that um, <laughs> as somebody who's worked in television for a decade, I had this really alarming realization about myself this week, which is that I really believe that film is the far superior storytelling method to television um, because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah. And very, very, very few TV shows do. The ones that do are spectacular, but 
there's always going to be soft spots. There's always going to be bad episodes. There are movies with no bad scenes. Yep. Um, there I, are no I think I shows. think I know one of them. I spoke about <laughs> it for two years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, there's no television show that exists past a season or two with no bad episodes. Correct. Um, but and, also, so, and just, sometimes epi- sometimes TV shows have to come back around to another season. Like you look at something like The Wire, one of the most ambitious te- television shows of all yeah. time. Um, you, you get it and you go, all right, here's season one, essentially perfect. Season two, very aspirational in terms of the landscape, but people would say that's a softer season. Season three is starting to come back and then you get to season yeah. four and it's like, oh, that's perfect again. Like, yeah. you know, even in arguably... But one then of the, it goes to five and it's bad. Again. And then five isn't, five isn't great. But it's like, at the same time, when The Wash, it's like, you know, um, it, it, to, to Alan Siepenwall and Matt Zola-Zeitz's great book, like they did a book called TV The Book. Uh, that's why they rated something like Deadwood, which is a, you know, a much shorter show in, in all until the, the conclusion movie, so highly because it didn't have a lot of time to stick around and lag it was so potent and so sharp and short that it's like the 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 level is so high you know i say that for true detective season one and i love that anthology style like true detective season one is perfect forget the rest of the series it has its issues but season one is as that is as high a watermark as television gets in my mind that's interesting i would i i feel like deadwood actually i think the third season did you could see it starting to fall apart but I think for me, season two of Deadwood is oh. as good as television has ever yeah. been. Good, great. Um, Couldn't agree more. But here's the other thing. And, and again, not to like, we're going way out on the outer rim of thought here, um, at least for me. Um, television shows are basically determined, their length, all of it, the number of seasons it gets, all of that is basically determined by capitalism. And not to get all socialist about it, but it's true. Yes. Television, the form of storytelling of television exists because of capitalism the length of a movie more or less with some exceptions and obviously there are some very big exceptions is based around the human ability to sit still and watch a movie for a certain amount of time and that's kind of you know people lose that now but it's like alfred hitchcock said the length of a movie is determined by the size of the human bladder um (laughs) and 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 he's not fucking wrong actually he's he's not wrong not wrong and if I were to ever start a, well, someday I hope to start a, a film company and I really want to call it tight 90. Oh. Um, cause I'm a big believer in the tight 90. I'm fucking in man. I'm in like, right? and, and this movie as an epic, like let's talk the runtime. I, I actually said to my friend Maria, I said, have you seen last of the Mohicans? And she said, no, it's probably some Michael Mann bullshit. That's like five hours long <laughs> was exactly she the one who point. called you out on Twitter that one time. Yes, she was. Yeah. yeah okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> I love that that's her reputation now again in this podcast. But I said, no, it's actually less than two hours. I said, it's an hour 40-ish. Yeah. And when have you ever heard of an epic that has got this level of production, that is this yeah. strong and this focus that is just like, I'm going to do this and then it's done. And I think it's so rare. Again, like in a movie that we're talking about the finale, which is 12 minutes, seemingly long like if you think about a finale and the conclusion the conclusion of the movie but it's like it's so tight like a tight 90 man a really tight punchy 90 minute movie yeah they, they can't be beaten i love the name too and copyright yeah. copyright you <laughs> I, I i need to copyright it um no and this is where and i i get to sit out this giant chunk of film twitter by just not going to see once upon a time in hollywood um <laughs> 
because I don't really go see three hour movies um, and, and not his anymore. Uh, um, and, and so I get to be the guy who doesn't have an opinion about it, which really is a great place to be right Sometimes now. Sometimes it can be really nice. It's really nice to not have an opinion about a three hour movie. <laughs> but sorry, I could, I could go off forever. Um, I mean, I think when you, to jump around, because we don't need to break it down because you have so many people talking about it. There's so many good things. It, it, it's such a tragedy. You know, you lose um, the second to last of the Mohicans. Uh, falls under Magua's <laughs> knife, right? Um, uh, Madeline Stowe's sister jumps off the cliff. Alice is gone. Uncas is gone. Um, and then, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many moving parts. It's all so beautiful. The shot, my favorite shot, and it's not, it's not a moving shot. When Last of the Mohicans, um, I know you have all these names. I just got. I'm looking at them on on Twitter now. Chingachgook. Chingag. Chingagook. Last of the Mohicans. Russell Maines. There we go. Yeah. This guy, Magua has just killed his son. He's not fucking around anymore. Magua sees him coming and does this move where he, I'm going to do it for you, but (laughs) the audience can't see me because they're not on Skype. I'm going to describe a presentation of weapons. Presentation of weapons. You know what it is? I just fucking realized that when we were both doing it to each other on Skype right now, it's it's the uh-huh. Henry Cavill arm cocking from Mission yes. Impossible Fallout well before that, but it's actually weapons. It's like, here we go. Yeah. Like He's, get, he's, he's got a knife up. and an axe, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it, it's exactly that. It's, it's the equivalent of like, okay. <laughs> and he does, it's a totally, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't put him in motion. It's just like, oh, another motherfucker. All right. <laughs> And then Last of the Mohicans absolutely suns him. I mean, like, <laughs> just fucks him up. And that's what's, it's, it's so funny. It's not a vicious, I mean, it's a vicious fight, but it's like, oh no, he toyed with the son, and then the, then the dad just toys with him. Yeah. Uh, and puts that massive battle club straight fucking through him. Yes. Gives him a compound fracture on the arm. I mean, it is violent. Yes. And, and, and uh, there is, what I love, and it's so funny and you, you get this in your writing too. And I know that you're an Elroy fan, of course. With uh, I, You and I both have, I think, an affinity for really fucking direct dialogue, like straight yeah. to the point. And also straight to the point violence because violence in a lot of films is often glamorized. But one of the things that I think you both, you and I appreciate and the, the things that we like is that when something is really violent, it's not, it's, it's not very flashy, it's direct and what I love, and I, what I love about this Magua sequence with Chingachiku is, he goes up, he 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 baits him into a shot. Magua swings this tomahawk around. Chingachiku ducks it, rolls under, and just goes belts and just it completely eliminates an arm. His arm that's holding an axe now has a compound fracture of the elbow. He can't yeah. move his arm anymore. And then when he gets up, he just starts battering him on the side, on the opposite side. So then he's got, but he's on both sides then completely just trashes a shoulder just in case your arm might be able to get through this with the adrenaline yeah, yeah, surge yeah. you're about to feel like every shot is it's like four or five debilitating injuries on top of on top of one another before he eventually says does that killing blow which is which he does which he takes no satis and both of those kills Margaret's kill of Uncas and also Chingachiku too taking him out he's not satisfied at all with having no. to with having to kill him in that moment. 
No, it's not a cackling, like, ha-ha. No. It's not even really a mocking, like, that's right. It's just like, oh, you killed my son, I now have to kill you. But it's, it's, it's so direct. It's literally, his son has been dead. Like, his son is still, probably still body temperature, right? <laughs> yes, um, yes. He has not yet begun to cool. And um, <laughs> uh, just to go back for a second, talk about uh, trademark phrases and a, and a new script I have of hoping to sell a TV show very soon. I, I have a, a line of, of, of like a statement of intent in it, which is, we don't do action, we do violence. Yes. Um, which is exactly what you're talking about. It's not flashy kung fu moves. It's not a million machine guns going off and nobody getting hit. It is it is violence that has a plot purpose and a character purpose, united. Um, nobody does it better than man. I'm thinking about, we want to do a podcast about the Miami Vice movie. Um, the first <laughs> don't Miami fucking Vice start. Movie. Don't start. <laughs> There's already, um, you know what happened? You saw what happened on Twitter. As soon as I announced <laughs> this, the thread underneath it became every... Every man, fan, and their dog pitching me what right. the next show was, and uh, she was. and I did but actually say I was never going back, and I'm back. I, 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 and you're back just when you thought you were out. They pull you back in. <laughs> um, do you remember, like, very early in that film, there's a drug deal between some Russians mm. and some Aryan Brotherhood guys? Yes, and I believe it's the Aryan Brotherhood who has basically like a fifty cal machine gun. That they a, open up on a car full of people, uh-huh. and man just obviously like wired some dummies with explosives, and you literally see an arm come off at the shoulder. Yes, um, but it's not in slow. I mean, maybe it is in slight slow mo, but it is. It's it's just like very like. Oh no, this is what happens when somebody gets shot with a with a big gun with a fifty cal, and it just eats the car yeah. and eats that person. Like it's yeah. like, oh shit! <laughs> like it's like this is not this is not made you know. That whole thing of like, this is not made for humans. You know, that, that 50 yeah. cal gun is like, we're just going to chop you into mincemeat. Like, we don't care. There's no, there's not yeah. like, you're not going to get winged and walk away. Your arm's right. going to fly off. So, so when, when this happens and, and Magua is so thoroughly defeated, you're correct in that there's no pleasure on, on the father's face. There's no really emotion at all. And what's also interesting, if to go back to Magua, is there's not really, Magua's facial expression isn't agony and it's not there's no kind of fear and there's no kind of like begging or anything but he's also not like falsely bravado it's just kind of like what the fuck just happened Mm. like he just oh this he did not think he was gonna lose this fight he just got his ass handed and now he's just standing there waiting to die because what you he lost the fight so he's gonna die now i i love that what you said there is like there's a sort of there is like this minor wince, and it's like, how the fuck did this happen? That that's literally the trans- translation that I've had in my head forever. It's like he's he's got this wince of like, how the fuck did this happen? And then there's a realization, and it dawns, and it's done in two cuts because it cuts back to Russell Means as Chingachgook, and then it cuts back to Magua. And so the first one, Magua's wincing, and then it cuts Chingachgook, and he's kind of got blood on his head, and he's sort of shaking his head like. You made me do this. Like, this is the last thing that I want to be doing. I don't want to be fighting other heroes. I don't want to fight under Indian tribes, Native American tribes. I don't want to fight any of this shit. I was taking my sons. We're going to Kentucky. We're getting out of here. And the freaking French-Indian War just stopped by, and you fucked with my son, and now I'm here. And and he says that all in no seconds. All words. It just is all passed in, this is not where I wanted to be today, and especially with you. And and is kind of like, by the time he cuts back to him, and it happens in such a fleeting amount of seconds, he's just like, 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm ready to and, and And it's all timed perfectly. And again, the score... It's not in a it's not in a large crescendo. It's actually kind of in a, in a slow refrain, mm-hmm. um, and, and the, the the music comes down for this moment, and, yeah. and it, you just get to live in that moment between these two guys. And again, you're right. It's like he doesn't want this. Is not good. It's it's a tragedy for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if somebody if your if your sister isn't dead, then your son is dead, and your tribe's extinct. Or <laughs> you know. I guess Natty Bumpo comes out the best because he only kind of lost sort of a stepbrother and uh, and his girlfriend's sisters. I mean, nobody. You're like, where do you go? And like, he did. And he did have to kill the guy who essentially gave him his partner, right? Like he saved his oh, girl's right. life, and he had to shoot him in the head. So they're all kind yeah. of in... as a bud. He does it as a bro. <laughs> <laughs> you know? That's I'm, what bros I, do for bros. Hey, bros do for bros. You shoot me in the head if I'm on fire, bro. Okay? Yeah. You shoot that's me right. in the fucking head. <laughs> if I'm on fire, you can't get to me. Because that's important. First, try and get to me. Try and get to if me. If you can't get to me, shoot fair me. enough. You shoot me. me in the head quickly. Because, Quick. because let's not forget, talking about violence and not action, that scene of him burning has been burning in my in the back of my retinas since the minute I saw it. It is one of the most <laughs> disturbing cinematic deaths ever. Like it's you good, yeah. you are you are so grateful for his death. Like oh, yeah. you love him in that moment. He he's in total redemption mode and then he's murdered in the most savage way possible. Yeah, cuz you know they could have gone badly if, if like obviously Natty Bumpo doesn't miss. But were Natty Bumpo to miss and just kind of wound him? Like, <laughs> it's the worst to, punishment of all time. Just like shoot him in the knee or something like <laughs> real painful just to kind of like... Fucking stick the knife in. Bro, that's... Yeah, re- that, in the cake. Not cool, bro. That, that's <laughs> not what bros do for bros. Bro, bros don't miss. Oh, um, bros don't miss. Just, just to, now that we're on the lighter end, when you say Kentucky, mm. have you watched and it just when we were talking about all the different things to explore in this film. The Ben Stiller show, which was a sketch show he did in the you know, 90s. You know what? So the, it's, I'm so glad you brought this up because I'd never heard of it. And in the last, oh. and three people who I've talked to for this show <laughs> have like, Blake, stop what you're doing right now. You need to watch this. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to pause for everyone. If you don't know what we're talking about, the Ben Stiller show does an amazing sketch about the last of the Mohicans. At peak funny Ben Stiller, I'm going to cut it into this episode right now. Hi, I'm Daniel Day-Lewis. And those of you who've seen Last of the Mohicans know that much of the plot consists of my character Hawkeye running from one place to another. Running up hills. Running across fields. Through rivers. Running, running, and more running. How did I get into shape for all this running, you ask? The answer is this. The Mohican Master 2000. When I want a light warm-up, I set the Master to chase five bears. For more of a challenging workout, I move on to pursued by flesh-eating Huron tribesmen. And for full-on aerobic training, I press surrounded by drunken Yankee trainers with muskets. Wow. Work out like that will sweat off your tribal tattoos. You know, the Mohicans may have been last in the race to survive, 
but they were number one when it came to cross-training. So come on, what are you waiting for? Get yourself a master. It helped put the ICANN back into this Mohican. The Mohican Master 2000. Get yours today. Warning! If something goes wrong on the treadmill, stay on! Do not get off! I will come! No matter what occurs, I will fix it! That's my personal... And for a limited time, get a rebate on Jazzercise with Wolves, the step aerobic system by Kevin Costner. Okay, feel yourself scalping that weight away. Scalp it off. Scalp it off. This offer not available in Kentucky. But yes, Jordan, please talk about what people have just listened to. Well, it's just, it, it really kind of gets to the fact that, like, Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously a great actor. But, like, sometimes great actor choices are bad choices. And what... One of those bad choices is, and you know it was him. It wasn't anybody else. It was him who said, no, they wouldn't say Kentucky. They'd say Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and, and so what we have just seen is obviously <laughs> Ben Stiller really kind of roasting um, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, which you go like, who are you to roast Daniel Day-Lewis? I will say this. Find a uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman performance that you could make fun of the way you can make fun of Daniel Day-Lewis's performance in this movie. You can't do it. No. Um, um, and... There's something, look, is Daniel Day-Lewis a fantastic actor? Yes, he is. But like this kind of level of authenticity, they would say, oh, he stayed in character when he played Abraham Lincoln. And whenever I hear something like that, I go, no, he didn't. Because if he was in character as Abraham Lincoln, he would be saying, where am I? What's going on? Where did you get all these candles? Why are there candles everywhere floating now, in the air? No, I dare not do the impression. But I'm going to beg of you, Jordan, and anyone who hasn't had a chance, if you're listening to this as your first episode of the last 12 minutes of the Mohicans, thank you and welcome. Um, an overdue thank you and welcome. Um, Sean Burns, a hilarious um, and, and sardonic and also insanely talented film critic, uh, tells me a story that I am dying for you to hear, Jordan, about uh, when for, I think it was The Crucible, which was shot mm. in Boston, starring Daniel mm-hmm. Day-Lewis. His character's name was John. There was a bunch of Boston people and people that Sean knows, like builders and just tradesmen who were building the sets for that movie. And at the time, Daniel Day-Lewis basically had a demand with the filmmakers that he would go down to where they were constructing the set because he, John, wanted to build John's house by hand. Uh-huh. And Sean's story about the construction workers... <laughs> is one of my favorite stories I've ever heard on this show. So I just want you to have a listen to that. I'm just going to give that a little tease. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like there is this weird layer of like, please call me that name. I've always wondered that. Like, please call me that name. But also like, do I, you know, I think Daniel Day-Lewis in some of these older movies does take it to the limit. Like he's like, he's like, call me Nathaniel, call me Hawkeye. I'm going to run around the set. I'm going to carry the guns. I'm going to sleep outside. I'm going to be an outdoorsman. But also now like, you know, a little bit easier when you're Reynolds Woodcock, but like, really, is he sleeping outside the whole time that he's um, Daniel Plainview? Like, is he doing that? I don't know. I don't know. It's, I don't it's, know. it's really, it's really funny. But like, yeah, it, to, th- that's a you know, talk about tragedy. That's the tragedy of losing someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman because that guy is effortlessly brilliant in every film he's ever been in, without question. There's yeah, just like, I, there's not an exception. He's a brilliant. No, there really entity. isn't. Um, and. You know, the one, again, not to, now that we've taken old Daniel Day-Lewis down a peg, (laughs) uh, about time. Um, 
you know, you want to know how great an actor Philip Seymour Hoffman was, watch the first five minutes of the Mission Impossible that he's in. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, A, it's a performance in a Mission Impossible movie, which are good movies. I don't want to say they're bad movies, but they're Mission Impossible movies. And he's fucking terrifying in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, ma- and, ma- and he makes Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt, like, shaking his boots in such a really authentic way. And I think Cruz, Cruz compliments his performance so well there. He, like, he surrenders to like, here's the big dog on set right now, you know, like yeah. having those two and that, that um, point counterpoint. So effective, so effective. It's my almost favorite uh, face off with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's that. And it's Adam Sandler and he facing off in punch drunk love. They are my Ooh. two favorite face offs when he's just that That's... fucking angry furniture salesman slash extortionist. It is just dynamite. Two of my favorite face-offs with uh, that legend. Well, look. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Sorry. Um, speaking of Adam Sandler, did you see the that he's in the new Safety Brothers film? I know. Uncut Gems, hearing lots of amazing stuff. Hearing lots of amazing I stuff. I can't wait. I can't love wait. the Safety Brothers. So wonderful. So good time. I was so glad. I, I, saw, I, didn't, I missed good time when it was at the theater and I watched it. I watched it on Netflix. So this is the one time that you love streaming television so much. It's like I watched it on Netflix and I just went, send a play again. And <laughs> just watched it back to back. I was like, that movie was brilliant. I'm going to go again. Thank it's, you. Second it's helping. an amazing movie. Really good. Yeah. No, I, I, looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's, there was like three or four moves there to get from Last of the Mohicans to uh, Uncut Gems. To Adam Sandler right now. Yeah. Look, and, and if, if that's my, my talent... And from anyone who's listened to one minute, the digressions got really strong. <laughs> they were really strong digressions. Jordan. But, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, man. Really, Blake, just, you don't have to do Michael Mann movies, but just, you know, keep doing these and I'll keep showing up. It's oh, so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Look, and uh, there will be more movies that this happens to. Increment Vice is on the way. Jordan is already a guest which I can reveal right now as, in, as an exclusive with our wonderful host, Travis Woods. You guys can hear that episode when that comes out. That's a 45-episode series, um, uh, which you'll be able to hear soon. Um, and if you're listening to this, it might already be out, so go check it out. There'll be links in the description if that's the case. Um, but, man, thank you so much for being a part of this. Huge admirer of your work, as you know, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, Dune come out, the Danny Villeneuve film, number one, and then The Sisterhood. Doing, mm-hmm. doing what the Dark Tower never did. Fingers crossed. I'm hoping for that. Jordan, thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, man. At Jordan Harper. Thanks for having me. You can find him on Twitter, and you can find his books everywhere. She rides shotgun. Incredible. Highly recommend it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Talk soon. Well, it just wouldn't be me doing another podcast that takes up a significant slice of my life about Michael Mann without my next guest. He helped me kick it off and he helped me bring it home. Uh, A dear, dear friend, the third leg and girthiest leg of the tripod of the Cinephiles podcast 
He's one of the sharpest film minds and uh, forever will be in my crew. He's my ride or die. And in fact, he's growing his hair so beautifully and magnificently right now that he could almost be my Val Kilmer to my Neil McCauley. Here's Mr. Stu Coot. Stu, welcome to the I'm last inspired. 12 minutes of the Mayhems. <laughs> I'm inspired by Daniel Day-Lewis's uh, glorious long locks. So it is, I'm very privileged to be back. Thank you for having me on. Always Always a pleasure to talk incremental portions of films with you, no matter what the, no matter what they are. So first things first, when I first told you I was doing this, what was your immediate thought? I was like, how many episodes, how long is the movie? <laughs> and you went, no, it's only the final 12 minutes. I'm like, oh, so that's a Tuesday for you. <laughs> it shouldn't take you any time at all. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's, and it was funny that you say that because it was actually a Tuesday was the day that the idea occurred to me and I started throwing it out there. And so here we are, you know, um, you know, you and I've were bookended and, and, and obviously you're on the journey for many of it, uh, for, for, for every episode as a listener. Thank you for that. And as a, a feedback giver, um, but you're on the entire journey of heat, which is, I think is an unbridled masterpiece, almost unparalleled, I think in anything that man or most filmmakers have done, especially in crime cinema. And when I came to The Last of the Mohicans, I thought, you know, it is absolutely a movie that is worth scrutiny and absolutely a movie that is worth the scrutiny and the discussion. But much like I did said in the final episodes, I don't think it was me that was going to be going through every painstaking detail, but I, I just don't think my... Um, what do you call it? It's like, I don't think the method that I have of talking about films is as good when I'm only talking about it for an hour. I think no. I, I I think my I think where some people can articulate things in a tweet, yourself very much included in that, and some people can write things in a really florid, you know, piece of writing, like some of the magnificent guests that are gonna be on this show. I think maybe my my best thing that I do is when I can continue to find passion in unpacking and scrutinizing the living daylights out of a movie a minute at a time. Well, I think that's that's half the joy, though, isn't it? Of like going around and looking around every nook and cranny to see how it holds up or doesn't hold up. Like, um, but I think yeah, putting putting any bit of art to that scrutiny is always fun because some will very quickly collapse yes. and others will stand some... the test of time and will be handed down from you know heat will be handed down from generation to generation as it has already. Like it's it, it is. One of, if not, it's, you know, one of the best heist films, one of the best crime films, one of the best cops and robbers films. Um, in a similar way, this, I don't know if Mohicans, how Mohicans is ageing. I think it's beloved. I don't know if it'll, I don't know if it'll I think stand it, the test of time, but it's. I think much like the no, the 90s as a decade feels like it's ageing well. For movies, because people sort of yeah. go, oh, it was this garbage decade. It wasn't the 70s, nor was it the 80s. But as we move away from it, it's like, no, you know, what What was great about it was that what it shared with sort of late 60s, early 70s was there was a tendency of a, a bit of a collapse. So you had these big studios financing like things like Miramax and you had all the emergences of who are now the dominant filmmakers, you know, the Quentin Tarantino's, the Paul Thomas Anderson's, the Coen brothers. You had them all sort of emerging late eighties, early nineties out of independent cinema before they sort of hit the mainstream and the, and the, you know, the critical, critical acclaim. And I think Mahikens is kind of like, Oh, look at this big popcorn epic blockbuster 
But in the grand scheme of things, like no one ever really thought it would outlive something like Dances with Wolves. Yeah, but it, but it, that it, but, it, but, but it kind of is because yeah. who the hell's talking? Who the hell wants to go back? No, offense, no offense, but who the hell wants to go back and watch four hours? Because I don't even know if there's a theatrical cut on DVD or Blu-ray. Who wants to watch the four-hour Kevin Costner cut of Dances with Wolves as a first helping? Like, surely you just want to have a crack at it at you know two hours fifty. Yeah, it feels like. I mean, that's his a pure ego sort of driven thing, but it feels like the this period of the 90s, so like the early 90s, was maybe the last of the time these big epics could be done before CG came in, but they were sort of the, they feel like they were the last of the throwback to sort of older Hollywood, like yes. that last yeah. of the, let's do it big, let's do it on location, like lots of extras, lots of moving parts. And you kind of think in a way like you wish George Lucas Tell me, like, if he had made the prequels in the in the early '90s, with the confines of the '90s, just before that technology kicked off in a really big way, mostly by him. That's true. Have, Would we ever have gotten behind the scenes footage of George Lucas using a laser pointer, going, "I want more droids here. I want yeah. more droids there." We would never have had that. So that's a gift. That's a gift that keeps on giving on the Phantom Menace behind the scenes. It's that it's that last of that it's that last of the troll the dice I think before, you know we're still getting things around this period like, you know Braveheart and whatnot yeah. where it's still people on location lots of moving lots of extras lots of moving parts which is beautiful to watch like I hadn't I've been meaning to rewatch this forever and I I loved Last Mohicans I still do I still I'm very fond of it um it's really interesting going on the the journey from through Heat. And one heat minute, I went back and finally caught up with a lot of the man stuff that I hadn't seen before. Yes. And then rewatched, um, obviously rewatched things like Miami Vice, which, you know, that that's a thing that is like a fine wine. That's almost ready to crack. Don't like, that's almost fucking ready start. To Stop it. <laughs> I've had, if, I don't know exactly what order people are going to be hearing the guests on this show talk to me, but it, the, the few people are like, like, give Miami Vice a crack. Give it a crack. <laughs> I'm saying a... the people on Twitter, there was a, and this is actually from guests of the show. We're like, like har- harassing me to do Vice next. One, one Michael Mann masterpiece at a time, people. Thank you very yeah, much. I don't, I don't know if you'd want to, I'm not sure Miami Vice is something you'd want to revisit on an almost weekly basis like you need to with these shows. It's good, but it's not. It's a, it's a sort of a, it's a my, like I've got yearly films and I've got sort of 18 months, two years films. That'd be closer into the sort of the two year category where how often you need to sort of dust them off. But things like I hadn't seen The Insider, I hadn't seen Ali and I only, and hadn't seen Seeds as well. So I was lucky enough to catch that in the cinema, but I was then starting to pick up, I guess what, over that two year period of one heat minute, I would have watched Heat maybe 20 times in preparation for various shows or, or cinematic releases that we called it or like, you know, the two times it was in cinema in that time. Yes. And so it was interesting then to come back to now with all that sort of man filmography floating around in my head and all these little flourishes to then reapply it back to last of the Mohicans because, you know, I, I knew 
Last of Mohicans before I knew names of directors. Like he didn't yeah. like, you know, I would have been, well, I would have been probably 11 or 12 when I first saw this, yeah. which is the, probably the perfect age, you know, because it's not quite a, a swashbuckling adventure because it's more, it's, it's more serious than that. Yes. But it does have that kind of like, you know, not something as campy as, say, Pirates of the Caribbean, but it feels of an age where we're looking at a historical period, which is sort of akin to that. Maybe this is more like his version of Zulu in a way. Yeah. Like, in terms of like, like seeing, seeing the actual, like, you know, the white man on display, as it were, and being quite critical of sort of things against the, the, the indigenous peoples and the, like, you know, the everyone's motivations. It maybe has that. It sort of lives in that world of epics more than anything else. Yeah, it's got it's 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 absolutely got it's got swashbuckle. I think it's got some of those all those ingredients you just talked about. It's got swashbuckling, it's got political commentary. But I think Michael Mann's version of political commentary is just detail. Like his his aesthetic, his preparation, the tapestry of what he's trying to weave is the political commentary. You know, when you've got huge colonial superpowers that are that are butting up against an emerging democratic, you know, of the eventual superpower of the world, butting against multi like multi indigenous national societies and them all playing espionage on one one another just to pillage this entire continent and divvy it up the way that they want. And that's not so much for the indigenous peoples because they've got their own zones, but sort of like them sort of clutching for survival. That's Michael Mann's way of like having this big um, sort of, you'd call it like second layer or, you know, you, you know, second plot of the entire movie as they're sort of navigating through it. But then the A plot, that's the B plot. The A plot is a really small co-op of characters bashing against it. And so yeah. I think, I think that's what, I think that's what really clever directors do. They can use these and, and in very, very recently, I think it's very, Tarantino as well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is to use like two to three characters to tell an epic story of the United States at a sort of turning point in sort of socio-political culture um, and, and sort of re, re, revisiting it and revising it. And this is man going back to James Fenimore Cooper's in a way to his sort of foundational, if kind of dunderheaded um you know, text of American literature and, 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 you know, the, a stereotype creator and going, no, we're going to apply a more, we're going to apply a more intellectual lens to the makeup of the society. Um, and then we're going to tell a big swashbuckling, romantic, beautiful story on top of it that actually makes sense and doesn't just treat everyone like a stereotype basically. Exactly. Like it, I think that does have, uh, I don't think it does. Maybe it is. Like maybe it is a bit of a white savior film. That was one thing I sort of wrestled with on this viewing. It's sort of trying to like more and more just because you know we've had so many issues. Like and I'm still learning very much in terms of representation issues, and sort of thinking like I love this film for all the reasons I hate the Revenant. <laughs> yes. Like the Revenant doesn't feel earnest but, to me. But. Inari two loves Last of the Mohicans, and sure. the, and and you can tell. Oh, yeah, hundred percent, you can tell, and it doesn't <laughs> it it doesn't work. But then I was thinking of this, like I know the story's the story. We we you know you you have to analyze the the art you get, not the art you want. 
But I thought on this watch, what would have been interesting is if you swapped, like, I know this might be heresy to say, if you swapped Daniel Day-Lewis out and just had um, Eric um, Schwag or whoever it is playing uncut yeah, I'm guessing. as the lead, it would have been very interesting not to have this, like, you know, the quote-unquote white guy in there who's been raised um, by the natives and therefore is sort of got a foot in each camp. Because, I mean, the, basically, I guess the story is he's always trying to do the right thing by both sides and trying to be this mediator. But he's almost too saint-like in this. It's almost a bit on the nose with how proficient he is as a sort of a warrior, but then how sort of he's good Michael, he is at, at heart, which is it's he's fine. Michael, he's Michael Mann's great American hero. This is Michael. He, you know, he, know, yeah. He's being, this is him at his most sincere. I guess, like being the great American hero, and and the from from what I understand from the original novel, which I haven't read, um, but from what I understand from the original novel, is Nathaniel Poe, aka Hawkeye. His name was Natty Bumpo. <laughs> a good name change from the original novel, right. and uh, he was just like a trapper, like he was a trapper, much in the ilk of. Uh, um, of a Leo DiCaprio and the Revenant sort of guy, like just a trapper. He was a yeah. white trapper. Um, his family had lived there. He comes in, he has this relationship with this, you know, the daughter of a white colonel, etc. cetera. Um, Cora's fate is different in the book. Um, and I just, I, I, I particularly liked, I particularly like Hawkeye and I still like him because I think it's an interesting it's an interesting revision on like the Magua thing. I think in, 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 when you go back to this now, especially after you watch heat, like the Magua Hawkeye similarity is so much more pronounced for me when I watch this again, because of the way that, you know, Magua is a guy who's, who's, who's orphaned from his tribe in a raid on a war party, gets readopted by another tribe and then adopts himself into the French tribe before sort of coming back to his Huron people as and trying to return as this savior, adopting all these ways of the French. And then you've got Hawkeye, Nathaniel Poe, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who's, you know, who's a white guy, who's a trapper, who's in the States, who's who really is there, like meant to be aligning with these colonial militias, meant to be aligning with these guys, and he just doesn't give a rat's. Like he cares about them. But he cares about his intimacy of his family group first and foremost, and that's 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 who he cares about. So I kind of like how it's like these weird things of like family and scale and doing what you think is right or doing what you believe is right based on the people that you've you've been raised by. Um, but it's never really on the nose with him. I think it's like it's a great American hero for me. I don't know. Like I, I totally get that some people might feel it's on the nose. Hell, he's running around with his damn shirt open, his chest glistening, his hair being gorgeous, him taking every shot. There's, there's not also, there's no real, um, like there's no real grade to the character. Like, man, like after watching most of his film, re-watching most of his filmography, you are getting that analysis of what a man is or what a man does or like the inner conflict. There didn't seem to be a great inner conflict, like in terms of like a breakdown, because it's all like, no, he's, 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 he's the peak. I think, I think the, he's the peak, you know, even man himself calls him in, in the, in the documentaries and in the sort of verbiage about the film and any interviews that I've researched so far, 
You know, he says this is his great American hero. This is his captain. This is his Captain America. <laughs> instead of wielding, yeah. instead of wielding a shield, it's a, uh, it's a tomahawk. tomahawk and a shotgun. But it and it feels like that. It just feels, you know, and maybe, you know, it, it's still maybe that sort of old storytelling of you know good versus evil. Like whereas Poe is sort of, oh, I'm 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 not here to do the right thing. I'm just looking out for me. Wink, wink. I'm actually here because I'm fighting for, with love in my heart. Whereas Mogwai is sort of very much hate in his, and it's sort of well, that's not going to win. But yeah, I, I also would have liked to see instead of Nathan Poe, I would have liked to see Cameron Poe from Con Air. I think that because they got equally would have equally nice hair to be running around in the wilderness. There's there, God. There's what, what do you what do you call? It? Is it like deep fakes? There's someone who yeah, can. There's someone he's who can. They know the way, and they show the way. He's an army ranger. Like, there's so, there's someone in the deep fakes of the internet that can put, that can put uh, Cameron Poe's face on Nathaniel Poe's face in this movie, and just get a clip up. Please tag us at Blake is Batman at Stew underscore Watches. Yeah, well, look, but well, 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 look, we've digressed enough. Let's talk about yeah. the ending. Let's talk. So, you know, obviously you said you watched this film a long time ago. So did I. I watched it when I was a kid, probably inappropriately aged to watch men have uh, their hearts cut out in front of us, etc. It was at a very, uh, you know, at a formidable age, this movie, you know, left a mark. But, you know, as someone who has watched me go through the, the, the heat epic, you know, this final 12 minutes, can you just, you know, when we talk about, cinematic flourishes when we talk about the use of music when we talk about performance when we talk about editing is there really you know and i think i know the answer to this but is there really many films that have ever done it better than the final 12 minutes of this movie no it wraps it up again because there's it's the storytelling throughout is so efficient and there is not a single frame wasted in this final 12 minutes you got that pounding score and you've got because I, I, on this watch, I think that the two winners, are obviously that score is number one. Yes. And then number two is is the camera of Dante Spinotti. Like that, the, it is just beautiful to look at, which is, you know, probably a of where they are is half the reason. Like you've got a master cinematographer there, but then also a beautiful area to shoot. But the way man knows when to hit the emotion well, like when... Mogwa um, kills Anta and his father then like comes running through. I love that it stays on the score and yes. you can't see, you can't hear him screaming. Yeah, you see the anguish on his face as he comes round. And those, some of those imageries that just burned, like I forgot again, I forgot how cruel Mogwa was, like how he toys. He toys with him, and he and he's torturing him all the way to the end. I mean, really, there's no nobility with the way that he's dispatching someone. And then I love—he's very how, good at killing. He's very. But I love how then when his father comes through, how it's the wily old warrior who's been doing it the whole time, and how quickly he dispatches. Like when you see a true, a, an actual true warrior in his in his peak, um, dispatching Mogwai the way we just zero patience for him and just sort of it's again it was so visceral though it's um and again it even gets in like i'm still wrestling with the sort of alice committing suicide which is you know one of the more beautiful love stories that's 
weave throughout this that you know a lot of the focus goes on Madeline Stowe and rightly so I think she's phenomenal and I don't think it's a name that crops up enough when people are talking about like strong female performances and strong like actresses in general I think she has like her chemistry with Daniel Day-Lewis is is palpable throughout like not even just the the awkward um, roadhouse style Patrick Swayze standing <laughs> sex scene but Hey, hey, like, hey, hey. In all movies, there needs to be title holders for different things. Yeah. And if a standing shag is on, your ti- is on your list, is on your trophy cabinet, I don't think there's anything to sneeze at. You know, the MTV, I mean, MTV's got this stupid best movie kiss of the year. I mean, the best standing no. shag, that's a 10-year award and they've got it. I don't think I've seen anything remotely close. That's, you know, a lot of classless things, but this one's like a... It's chaste love. It's direct. It's sexy as. You don't know whose hair's whose. Both have got beautiful hair. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, it's so moving and it's so poetic. This sort of this ending. It's you know, as kids growing up, I always love. I love when Nathaniel comes through and like grabs the guy's gun that he's just shot. Like little touches like that, and it's like, of course he did because it was already loaded. And it's, a, it's all about efficiency and about moving and doing stuff on the run. It'd be like, you know, the, the old Robin Hood thing of like pulling the arrow out of the person you've just shot and using it again because that's the world that they've created and that's the tension. Yes. Uh, and also doing the two, like the two rifle shot is very cool as well. It reminds me when they do, when they're doing the sniper stuff, uh, when, the men, when the people are running out of the fort, I think it's a nice little callback to his sort of his gunplay. I, you and know, those oh, they're so good. They are very, very extremely cinematic, and God, Dante and Mr. Man love beautiful slow mo close ups with those muskets. They're just delightful. They do, you know. That is sort of, you know, like you say, those little man touches. Because I don't know, you know, for the for the for the most part, man is a pretty much a, a workman in terms of like the camera movement. He's not he's like, especially this is so everything that. Everything feels sort of more classic. Yeah, classic and, and fun. Classic and it's he's a weird one, right? Because I think I feel like you're going to say that like he's a functional director. Like he he works on function and detail, and he's very good at both those things. And he never would like to be referred to, and uh, um, he'd never like to be referred to as a pure stylist. Like he doesn't he doesn't like that word because he feels like it's he's not too. Showy. Yeah, I think that that's what he thinks of when you think of a stylist as opposed to style. Like, what is his yeah. style? What is the immediacy of what he's trying to create? What is the distance that he likes to keep you with his characters? Um, but yeah, he's he's definitely got... There's a great aesthetic in this. You just reminded me, though, it's funny about details with man, like foreshadowing. And one of the things that I don't think I've mentioned yet when talking about this in, 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 this, in this series is it's m- one of my favorite things is when Uncas... Hawkeye and Chingachakuk first come upon Cora, Duncan, and Alice as part of the British, um, that little British uh, uh, group that is sort of escorting them to Fort William Henry before they're accosted by Magua's small war party. So he's got like a, war, a smallish war party. And I just love, there's a moment where Duncan picks up a musket and Haw- Hawkeye walks over to him and like pushes the musket muzzle away. And he's like, in case your aim's any better in your judgment, because he's about yeah. to shoot Chingachikuk. 
But I just love in that moment, like you said before about him just sort of doing his thing that he's been doing the whole movie. And you forget yeah. that like he just mops up like 20 guys in the bush yeah. by himself. And yeah. and like Hawkeye and Uncas are out in the fray. But Chingatukuk's just like in the woods like a like a wolf, just sort of, you know, sort of navigating his way through each brush branch. And as, as someone streams away or someone goes to attack the guys from in there, he's just like mopping them up one after the other, one after the other. And so you go, you only get to see that sort of single beautiful, like, like where he throws that, whatever the hell that gorgeous thing is that he, that weapon that yeah, he's got. It's not quite an axe. It's not quite like a um, machete. It's like a cur- or a curved machete almost. Like it's, it's brutal. It's a brutal weapon. Yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. But the ending, I, he's one I did enjoy, like it's 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 an odd film. It's like how much time, how much time we spent in that fort for what we 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 were there. What maybe twenty minutes at most, maybe not even maybe twenty. And it's the same with that village at the end that they put together for like where they're doing where Duncan meets his demise. But you're like, look what you've built and put together, just for one for one small little portion. It's just, again, the attention, the scale of this film is huge. Like, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go behind the curtain. I was talking to Stu about coming on to the show because it felt wrong to not have him on the show so far. And, um, and he goes, I watched it last night and I said, Oh yeah, yeah. What'd you think? And he goes, it wasn't long enough. Yeah. I wanted more. How rare is that for a movie? Like how, and this is why I really wanted to focus on the ending of this movie is how rare is that to get to the end of a movie and go, I could have done a couple more hours in that world without well, breaking a sweat. There's an extra, there's probably an extra 40 minutes there where they could have just let some scenes breathe a little bit more and stretch the legs out a bit. Um, what's the saying? No, no bad film is short enough and no good movie <laughs> is too, too long. Yes. Like, yes. It, it really is though. Like there were times where I'm like, just, you know, it's like in a, when you're playing a video game, you just want to like get off your horse and go walk around the town. <laughs> like even when we sort of got to that fort, I know we, we saw a lot of it from the cannon fire, etc. But like I wanted to like, this is a, like a full set they built. They built, they built three, si- they built three sides of a fort in North Carolina from the wood that they cleared. They built it from it, the wood there. It feels like we didn't even get to see enough of the inner work. Like we only got sort of the meetings with the guys, but there were, you know, functioning stables and there were stores and there was everything. And you're going, my goodness, this is this is grand. In that, like nowadays, that would be that's a CG. That whole the whole thing is CG. Yeah. Like the village at the end would be like you know the rock, like that rock fight would be on a on a soundstage somewhere just built and help. Maybe we wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to tell the difference. That's fine, but these people were out there. Do you really think that? Place. Do you really think yeah, that? We sat like, in think- we sat in a one movie together this year. We sat in one movie together this year. We've seen a stack of movies together, but one particular, um, an absolutely stunning film called Monos, mm. shot on actual locations in South America. In, in, in locales that had never been filmed before. And when we were watching it, I know we sort of finished the film, we watched, came out at the end of it and we were like, like that felt as close to being on an alien landscape like Star Wars as anything yeah. else. And so 
if you haven't seen Monos, I can't recommend it higher. Probably my favorite movie of the whole year. And that and hard, hard, hard to find, but if you get it at like a festival or something, it's definitely I believe it's getting a theatrical run in the States small. Yeah. Uh in 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 sort of uh, as as we're talking now, we're in early September. Um I believe it's mid September, end of September that it's sort of getting a little bit of a wider release around the States. Um Did you did you catch Embrace of the Serpent a couple of years ago? Uh yeah, that was on uh, then went, and then went to Netflix. Yeah, 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 I did. Again. That's the same thing. It's in that sort of, not that they're just South American, but it's like that feeling of, yeah, the alien, like finding locations. And there is a, it's a, there's something visceral and real. And, but then you see other things where, you know, they go, oh, that whole set piece was CG. And you're like, oh, I didn't know. It looked like when it's not a flying alien or it's not a big blue light in the sky. But I think that there's, there's, but there's just, benefit. there's just something about, there's something that this film, there's something that films like Monos, there's something like films like Apocalypse Now. When something is happening in the frame, there's something that your mind does that says that's real. Like it's like a Duncan execution was like that. Like yes. that is, that's a horrific imagery. Yes, horrific. That's horrific. Yeah. And I don't know if you get that any other way than actually like, like and physically making it up and having the yeah. having the lighting of the fire around him or shooting through the flames to get that imagery and having the makeup graded to do that to have that look etc it's 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 visceral it's ghastly it's it's that that disturbed me as a young kid and continues to disturb me every time I watch it and I just feel like I just feel like these movies these kinds of movies you know, and and that and this and this ending particularly, and it's just to underscore the point of this ending. When you make the sacrifice, maybe financial, to cut like a little pathway in a North Carolina mountain and make sure it's got nets so that people don't fall off the fucking side of it, um, and choose to shoot this thing with you know extremely talented stuntmen and extremely talented second unit chasing Uncas up the hill, getting all the cuts, getting Hawkeye running through, shooting two guys at a time, all that sort of stuff. The payoff is like that's the payoff becomes timeless because we can watch it again and again. And even on the most recent, you know, Australian releases of ultimate cuts with director's definitive editions and theatricals. And they're in these beautiful Blu-ray transfers and we're watching it on ultra high definition televisions. It's not a lie. It just is frighteningly gorgeous every freaking time you watch it. It doesn't lose yeah. any of its luster from 92. Whereas you watch, as an example, you watch like the first Spider-Man film, which I think is 2001, 2002. Um, you watch the first Spider-Man film now and that CG is like, ugh. Yeah, it's hideous. It's, it's like watching Toy, going back and watch Toy Story 1. Yes. It's just, it's not going to, it's different to like, you look at the, like the old hand-drawn animation. Yes. That's going to be hot. That's, that's gonna timeless. Be yeah. It's really, and that, it's really something. Like I, and again, this was my first exposure growing up to Wes Studi. So oh. I always knew him from this and cause I came to Heath sort of much later. Like I've only watched Heath. I think it was about 2007 or eight when I first watched it. Maybe around about around that time, I just sort of bit the bullet one day and went. Everyone's always like, "I've heard so much, bang! I'm I'm going to check this out." And obviously, blown away. But to see Wes Studio, I was like, "Oh, I'm not really cool with Mogwai being like." 
Magua's going to fucking do something here, guys. I've got a bad feeling about this guy. It's just one of those things. Like, he just has a presence. And that look when he's got half the face, like, and his body paint, like the, oh, the yeah. face paint, yeah. like his face paint, is phenomenal. Like, it's just, he's such a powerful, like, a powerful presence on screen. Like, and there's something to his voice as well. Like, it, there's just, there's this timber to it, and this richness that almost makes him sort of villainous at the same time in a way. Like, but then also equally, when you see him in heat, like he blends so well back into any other sort of. But like, but, but that's also the makeup of all those tough guys. You go you got Ted Levine, one of the greatest character actors working. You got Michael T. Williamson, who is obviously a giant at like six five or something like that, and like has got a big enough personality to play Don King. Like, imagine the personality that's required and the the verbose nature to play Don King. You've got Jane Gum, Don King, and Magua all in the same crew with the devil yeah. and Michael Corleone. Like, this is the cops that you're dealing with, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, yeah. I think it's I think it's a perfect, perfect complementary thing. It's like once you've got those guys together, they kind of can help measure one another out. But whereas, like... You've got Magua as this towering force, Wes Judy, and you really only get to see him go, you really only get to see him elevate to the level that you kind of have come to expect from him when he's like standing face to face with Daniel Day-Lewis as Hawkeye in front of this Sashem sort of going through this negotiation scene. And I would argue in that moment, like although Daniel Day-Lewis is acting his pants off, he's chewing the scenery, saying all this wonderfully heroic, direct dialogue. He's like the coolest, you know, the uber man that, that you could ever want. And Magua just like in that final scene just dwarfs him. Like he just smashes, like he just doesn't even feel like he's in the same league. And it's like... Especially when you're seeing, you're literally seeing Magua's heart break in like slow motion kind of thing throughout that scene. And it's not... You wouldn't go so far as to say he throws a tantrum, but it more or less is for how reserved he has been throughout. And yes. he can't really show the petulance and he, before he storms off, but you just watch. There's, some, there's a very subtle change in that it, throughout that scene, whereas Daniel Day-Lewis never, arguably doesn't ever have to do that sort of thing. His turn, no. his turn to be less of a prick to... Um, Cora, maybe throughout, like to go from sort of, but even that's not, it, it's not on the same level of what Mugwai's asked to do. Um, yeah, and I love, I think the the physicality of that final fight suits Wes Studi very well. Like when he sort of reels back from Uncast the first time, and he's got the two the two little axes with him. Like it's just, he's almost like a like a bird of prey kind of thing, like a, an evil stork. <laughs> up on his or, or a raptor sort of thing, like about to about to strike. I can't and believe you. Mi- I can't believe you're missing it. This is the guy who loves Star Wars so much. Uncas, don't try it. I've got the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> I was just come on, man. Where are you? Stu's a little <laughs> bit hungover. He must be because this. <laughs> I was waiting for it forever. I do like. I do like the guy that like goes flying off the side of the rock when they, and it feels like something from like Predator or the A-Team when a grenade goes off and they go flying off. That felt like <laughs> Michael Mann, the TV show, TV director. What would have annoyed the living Dalits out of me and what would have like John Wood this movie and ruined the ending? 
is if every second guy went flying. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I think one guy's got to go. Yeah, because it, it shows how precarious the whole situation is. Yeah. Whereas... And I, I do like that when sort of he does, when the dad comes through, that Day-Lewis comes behind with a gun and everyone's like, no, no, they're going to have a fair fight. Yeah. I like that there's some nobility to that as well, that they go, no, no, these are... He's got a blood right to go and challenge. He's killed his son. We're not going to interfere. No one, no one's shooting anyone in the back. I like that. I like that aspect. Do you? And now, I, I sort of go either way on this. Does Mugwa stab Alice there? I always got the sense. I always got the sense when he was like lowering the knife that if she had taken the hand, no, he was going. I have a sli- I have a slightly different opinion. Thank you for asking. That's a good question. Um, I think that Magua, in that final Uncas kill just before Alice, so I think it's important to sort of contextualize my answer. I don't think he has. I think he's his most robotic in that moment, as in he's most reflexive, he's most instinctive. He's become a killer. He's been cauterized. Like he, the wounds of his past have cauterized him into a killer who can reflexively and just instinctively kill and torture. And when that blood spatter hits his face from Uncas, the disgust that reads on his face is less about the disgust of Uncas or being, being, you know, inhuman or whatever. It's the disgust of, look what I just did. Like, I don't know. I wasn't even thinking about it. And I just did that. I think Alice then looks over. It's what I love. There's like this profound ambiguity in Alice. Alice looks over. This is a girl who maybe f- three months ago was waving a fan and yeah. a- was waving yeah. a fan in a British court on cobblestones, yeah. fending off suitors. Uh, maybe was a little bit sickly. And she comes over to the Americas to go visit her dad, who's meant to be a big colonel in a fort where it's safe as houses, and wanders into the French and Indian War and has literally watched people just be butchered left and right. Like, she's just walking post-traumatic stress at this point. And in this moment of, like, pure kind of... as like this, I don't know, like, transcendent realisation. She looks over and literally sees a guy that could have been her lover's blood dripping off of Magua's hands as he does the knife. And I genuinely think in that moment that Magua's not going to hurt her. I don't think he is. But I think... I mean, he's, he's meant to be following orders to, obviously, what they were meant to... meant to go and have kids or she was taking him up for an arranged... Yeah, he's just like, take you, take her away to, set, 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 you know, to, to sort of help him ease his wounds or whatever the case may be. But... but, uh, but yeah, that's like him trying to be tender... Or, and I, th- they come I, I think or, in that moment, it's it's sort of tenderness as much as Magua could ever be tender. But Alice just realizes, right? She What she realizes, it's him, when he beckons tenderly, so to speak, putting the knife down, he's still holding the knife, A, and B, his hands are dripping with the blood of her lover. And so she's looking and going... I'm good. <laughs> it's like literal rock in a hard place. It's like, well, yeah. if I go with him, it's not going to be great. Whatever happens, because if he gets sick of me, I'm dead. So I have to do everything he says. So I'm going into enslavement. I'm going taken off into the woods. There's no creature comforts. I'm going to be dragged along with a war party. If Michael gets sick of me, he might just toss me to his war party. 
And so I've got to fend for my life, you know, the real harsh, disgusting reality of what it must have been like for a woman who was passed off to a war party of any nation at that time to be taken through a war like that. And she just goes, nope, it's not going to happen. So I don't, th- I don't think Margaret would have killed her in that moment, but I think that Alice saw everything. She saw every single thing like a premonition in his eyes, in that gesture, in her future. I know that everything from here is not good. And that tragedy of the money being mere seconds away oh. from when she, like for, and for Cora to, to sit, to witness it as well. It's that is that that never leaves me when that when I see her doing it when I just see her sort of because she's a very I don't not overly Jodie Mays the actress I'm not overly familiar with like her filmography but she's in she a lot she's, a, in, she's in a lot of things she's absolutely magnificent in Mohicans but I just say to everyone keep an eye out people may not know Jodie May at the moment off the top of their head but she's about to be known very well. She's actually going to be one of the queens in the upcoming Witcher series for Netflix with Henry Cavill. Oh, okay. But she's got a very, like, angelic sort of, like, ethereal sort of quality to her in this. Like, there's a, there is a there is an innocence there that sort of Madeline, Madeline Stowe brings a more of a world weariness to her and more independence. And more shagged, like, more standing shagged. More of. standing shaggers. Jody's sort of, you know, you only get to take her out to like a movie or something. There'll be no standing <laughs> shag there. But also, how old is she meant to play? I always get the sense that Madeline she's probably Stowe's, 16, 17. Cora's probably yeah. 20 at most. Yeah, she, she's playing, having to play quite young, but it, which, you know, it still works. I mean, that was of the era that no one, you know, yet. Luke Perry Emma is a teenager. <laughs> we had Emma Thompson playing 17 year olds in, you know, Sense and Sensibility and whatnot. So, yeah, those things, those things happen, but I. Yeah, there's just something to her as, as on that rock face that always always hits me for some reason, just in that in that sense. But and then to finish it with just that beautiful like looking out, like you know, bookended by those those mountain ranges. Mm. It's such a such a touching way to be like, you know what? We're all pretty tiny in the whole grand scheme of things. Like there's a whole lot of world out here, and we're just you know, a few surviving members of, you know, our own legacy. It's an interesting thing that sort of, it's a very quiet and reflective ending to what is at times a very loud film. And violent, extremely violent. Yeah, and to finish it on such a, I don't know, maybe a meditative sort of way, and just having that score wash over, it's a, it's an interesting choice. Whereas, yeah, you it's know, not. It's have... not. It's not as grandiose. It's. It, it makes you really ruminate on it, and I think that some of the best writing FX Feeney does some in uh, the Michael Mann sort of coffee table book, and even the Libraries of America's do a really great um, article, which I'll definitely link in um, on on the last of the Mohican webpage, uh, the last twelve minutes of the Mohican's webpage uh, pod, for the podcast. But there's, you know, these are core is the end of her line. Hawkeye is the end of his, you know, Chingachi yeah. is the end of his line. And it's just these converging ideas, you know, these converging ciphers in, in a historical context around like, you know, the world's still going to keep turning. 
shit's still going to go down. And these people are just, they're just, they're, they're just passing through. Like the whole movie and, is that sense. And I guess it could have been a variety of indigenous groups over of any sort of war torn era of across, of across history. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a sort of a bittersweet way to go out on, but I, I can't really think of any other way. No, there's no, like, for me, there's, there's no, no there's for, no, like, for me, there's, this there's is... on both, on all sides, there's grief, there's disease, there's hardship, and these are hard times in a hard place. And it's that realisation that things are coming to an end, it's a, it's an interesting note to go out on, whereas, you know, a lesser storyteller would have had the girls, you know, delivered somewhere else or, you know, would have had, you know, uh, Captain, like, Munro would have been, or, like, the commander would have, General um, Munro would have been saved or just, you know, there's brutality at every at every turn. Even the six people, three of them die in the last 12 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> of the yeah. central six, right? And the yeah. villain dies too. Yeah, and for no real gain. No. Like, there's there's really no sacrifice. Well, Duncan goes out because of his own self-sacrifice and he gets a redemptive moment. Uncas goes out because he just can't, bear to, he, he just can't bear to think of Alice getting passed around that war party career. Alice makes a choice and and then Chingachakuk deals out. And I really love that you said there's probably another detail Um and if anyone's listening to this and they kind of understand or know or particularly know what Mr. Man researched before I get a chance to talk to him myself, but I, I just wonder if that, you know, that, that that was a sort of that blood ride or that that gesture of, you know, standing back as something, you know, culturally significant because I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. But I, I, he, I, I like... When he dispatched Mugwai, you mean? Yeah, like as in like no one's going to take, take them out once that happens. I really like yeah. that touch. But I think, you know... I like endings. I like endings where people have to have to ruminate on the weight of what they've done. <laughs> like, I don't like closure. I don't know if it's me. I don't like closure. I like when. I like when you know the the robot that you've been talking to on your phone uh, creates a singular consciousness with all the other robots and all the other phones and then disappears off into the universe because they're smarter than yeah. you and leaves you alone with your human connections. Um, I like, I like when my heroes, uh, are all killed and, uh, and then the guy who dispatches them just unwittingly gets hit by a car, has a compound fracture in his arm and then <laughs> runs off into the woods, uh, sort of thing, <laughs> like runs off into the suburbs where it's, where it's fine. I, I, I like when, I like when a, a ritual sacrifice from local tribes people mirrors you murdering a kind of mad colonel in the in up the up river. Like I like when movies end and there is action, but the fallout of the action and the and the I guess the whole like philosophical weight of the movie lands square on your shoulders. And so for me, I, I like this has got a nice little coda. It's a nice little eulogy, if you like, and that's where the movie ends. But when that when that helicopter shot goes up and and just this grand world is around these three people at the end of their line, you're sitting there back ruminating on it. Like I feel like it's, it's the only time the film takes a pause. Yeah, we, really we haven't even had a breath. <laughs> no. Yeah, like it, and maybe that's 
maybe it's meant to have that driving momentum that leads you to that faithful place. Maybe that's the intention because it, it does not stop. Like even we sort of like even when the changes days in the in the film, we're still hitting the ground running the next day. There is that you know it starts with the camera zipping by as they're chasing that buck all the way yes. to then standing and just chilling out. Like maybe that is the point that they're meant to just keep going till they more or less stop there. You know, it's like it's, it's like paddling back in at the end of Jaws. Yeah. It's, it's finally taking that moment to just yeah. stop and, you know, ponder about what, what is, what's happened. What the hell just happened? I like yeah. it. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, and again, I don't think I would change anything. Like the perfect ending doesn't need any changes and there's not even – any tinkering that I, outside of like, yeah, swapping out Hawkeye for Uncas in terms of the narrative. <laughs> yes. But anything else, like it's the, I, I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change a lick of the other things. So I think it's, you know, I, I'm so glad you launched this product, uh, product, this podcast as a, just as an exercise, as an excuse to go back and revisit it because it's something I think I will pop this on, now I own it as well, like fairly regularly go back and be checking it out. So one upside from your crazy ventures. <laughs> well, I think I won't change a lick of this ending of this podcast with you. So thanks for coming back. Did you always think I was coming back to another Michael Mann film one minute at a time? Well, you? You, can't. If you, you were meant to do, get off the highway and get on the plane and leave, but you couldn't help yourself. You had to go... <laughs> Yeah, to go back for one more. Oh, Jesus. Well, look, I really, really appreciate your time here, guys. Stuku at Stu underscore watches. Cinephiles podcast, check it out, where the boys confess their cinematic sins. Josh, Lehman, of course. Stu, mate, I wouldn't have done this process if it didn't include you in some way, shape, or form. So thanks for being a part of it, and I appreciate you coming along. To standing. Thanks, Cheers to all the standing shag talk we had off air. <laughs> <laughs> the pleasure. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.